rocketed as a being from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode number 10 of Superman of the Bronze Age, the only podcast that covers the adventures of Superman between 1970 and 1986. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and we're going to go right into the reviews for this month. Now, before I get started on any episode or on any of the comics that I'm actually going to be talking about, I do first want to point out that we have an issue of Superman that's all reprints this month, and for some reason, which I'm not sure I understand because I can't find out why this was done. Superman number 239 came out first on August 6th, 1971, uh, with a June-July 71 uh, cover date, although the cover only shows July. Uh, and this is a 64-page giant reprint issue featuring Superman's greatest battles, and it's only 25 cents. And it does cover four uh, Superman stories, Hercules in the 20th Century, which is from August of 1960 in Action Comics number 267, and then part two of that same story, Superman's Battle with Hercules from Action 268, which came out in September of 1960. Both of those stories were written by Otto Bender, with art by Wayne Boring and Stan Kay. The third story is Titano the Super Ape, which is the story that, of course, introduces Titano for the first time. That story uh, was from Superman number 127, with a February 1959 cover date, and that story was also written by Otto Bender, with art by Wayne Boring and Stan Kay. And then the final story of the issue is the showdown between Luthor and Superman, from Superman 164, with an October 1963 cover date. That story was written by Edmund Hamilton, with art by Kurt Swan and George Klein. I'm not going to be reviewing those stories, uh, mostly because, well, one, of course, this podcast is supposed to cover the Bronze Age, and these are very Silver Age stories, but also because um, I don't want to step on any toes. You see, a friend of mine, Billy Hogan, hosts the Superman Fan Podcast, and he has recent, recently uh, changed the format of his show a little bit to start covering the specifically Bronze Age stories of featuring the Man of Steel and the entire Superman family. But he will soon be covering these stories on his podcast. So I figure if you want to find out more about those, you can check out his show. Uh, that's at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. His, uh, his show is also posted weekly at the Superman Fan, not Superman Fan Podcast, because that's his show, at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.com fortressofbailytude.com slash Superman Podcast Network. And there's also a link to his site on my webpage at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. So having gotten that, that, that issue out of the way, we're going to move on to our first issue of the month, which is Superman 238, which didn't come out until about a little over a week later on April 15th, 1971. And it has a cover by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson, and this is your standard, for the time anyway, 15-cent issue with a June 
1971 cover date. And on this cover, it looks really, it looks pretty cool. It looks like Superman uh, and the sand creature Superman are in some cold air, uh, looks like an Arctic, it looks bitterly cold on this issue with the winds blowing. Superman is basically on his knees begging uh, the sand Superman to help some dis uh, disaster that he can't apparently save on his own, but the sand creature says no because he's not from this world and he doesn't care about it. So that sets you up for a pretty cool issue. Uh, so the story is called The Menace at 1000 Degrees. The story is by Denny O'Neill with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson and it's edited by Julia Schwartz. Only seconds ago, the call came. A ship at sea under attack from modern pirates. Reporter Clark Kent heard the plea on the station WGBS TV monitor. And within moments, he was springing across a deserted file room, shitting his outer garments to reveal a familiar, colorful costume. Superman. And when I say he's leaping, he really is leaping. He has not fully recovered from the power drain he suffered last issue uh, when he was dealing with the sand superman, uh, the sand creature. And so it, at this point, he cannot fly, but he can leap. But unlike the Golden Age version of Superman, uh, he can currently cover dozens of miles with one good jump. So he jumps out to sea, and as he gets closer to the freighter, he sees pirate boats, and uh, they're shooting Navy surplus torpedoes at it. So uh, they've already damaged the ship, and it looks like we see an actual explosion, uh, one explosion, as Superman is coming in. So um, he decides he's going to stop this one boat that looks like it's getting ready to go in for the kill. And instead of landing or even saying anything to the to the crew on board, he literally just smashes through the hull all the way through to um, to the water underneath, figuring that that should stall them while he takes care of the other boat. And as he goes to do that, he sees there's a torpedo headed right for the freighter ship. If it hits, that the boat's going to pretty much be destroyed. So Superman floats there. And waits for it and takes the full brunt of the explosion. However, in his weakened state, it does um, daze him and leave him pretty much floating, looking like basically like uh, Superman does in Superman the movie when he's got the kryptonite around his neck. Does not look good. Fortunately, um, what uh, with what he's done, he's been able to give the Coast Guard time to come in and take care of the pirates. Uh, they uh, the Coast Guard brings him on board and talks to the cabin, captain, who has apparently already interrogate, interrogated the leader of these pirates, who apparently thought that uh, there was uh, gold on the freighter, which is why they attacked it. Turns out that there's nothing but food and something else, but uh, the captain is cut off by one of his uh, subordinates telling him there's a radiogram for, for him. And it turns out that Project Magma has been captured. So he brings Superman to his cap cabin to fill him in, and we learn that, uh, as you may or may not know, this is the early 70s, so of course we've got a little bit of the energy crisis coming in here. But, um, of course, the big, big thing on everyone's mind is uh, fuel and energy. And coal, oil, gas, even uranium will soon be gone in a few generations, so everyone's been looking for substitutes. For example, we saw in issue 233, that uh, they, uh, that one doctor was trying to make a kryptonite engine 
which would be another great way, which would have been a great way to power things other than the fact, you know, it blew up. <clears throat> so we find out that the government has secretly, uh, for the past few months, been drilling deep into the Earth's uh, surface because they think that there's a possible answer of using magma deposits to provide energy. Unfortunately, uh, the Coast Guard was actually guarding the project up until they heard about these pirates. And with the pirates there, um, they got called away. So now no one's guarding Project Magma. Which, of course, is not a good thing. So Superman takes off and with a big hearty leap again and gets over to the oil. Uh, and apparently it just looks like a huge oil derrick on giant rafts. And Superman tries to make it look like he's flying, so he gets to a nice height and then does kind of like a bomb, uh, like a dive. It literally does look like he's flying here. And, but of course he's spotted by the invaders, not the invaders. He's spotted by the terrorists, which basically is what they are. And they use this magma gun, uh, which I don't know why they have a magma gun unless it's supposed to be a way to suck out the magma. But in any event, they fire the magma gun at Superman, which of course covers him in magma. And it stops his leap, his forward leap, and he drops like a stone into the water, which cools the magma and hardens around him like a second skin. But he's but with enough twisting and willpower, he's able to break out. He wants to uh, uh, try to attack from below, but he sees that the rig is just too complicated, and he doesn't want to risk uh, causing any more damage. So he decides he needs some help. And his telescopic vision tells him that he can get help at his Fortress of Solitude. So heading across the Atlantic at super speeds, because he can still move pretty quick, Superman gets to the Fortress to meet up with the Sand Superman from last issue, from the last few issues, actually. He tries to tell Superman, or he tries to beg with him to help him, because Earth could be destroyed, but of course, like on the cover, he declines, saying the affairs of mankind mean nothing to me. Uh, meanwhile, at, apparently at that same moment, in the offices of the Daily Planet, we learn about who the terrorists are. As Morgan Edge comes in to talk to Jimmy and Lois, and we learn that the, uh, the main terrorist, the leader, is a freelance spy named Quig, and he's double-crossed virtually every head of state in the world, and has finally run out of hiding places. So with nothing left, uh, to, with really nothing left to lose, he's decided to take over Project Magma and has made the de following demands. He wants $10 million in gold, 50 hostages to ensure no one will try any tricks, and a hydrogen bomb. And he notes that if, they, if anyone refuses, his men will blast the drill hole, which basically means, you know, the planet will blow up. Uh, which Morgan Edge, of course, explains to Jimmy because we wouldn't know that. But basically, it's going to split the Earth in half, which kind of makes the Earth blow up. So Lois decides she's going to be one of those 50 hostages because this will be the news story of the year, maybe the century, because this is nothing compared to the Boy of Steel flying around in, in Smallville or, you know, Superman coming to Metropolis. 
No, this is bigger. Which actually I can kind of understand. At least at the moment. Uh, in any event, early the next morning we see 50 courageous volunteers disembark from a uh, a cutter onto the Ma uh, Project Magma site. One of them is Lois. And the $10 million in raw gold is lowered onto the is lowered onto the project and a hydrogen bomb is released using a crane apparently and of course back at the galaxy building and I said daily planet didn't I which that's okay because see the daily planet is still part of the building it's just now the galaxy bro uh, broadcasting building so that's okay anyway uh, so of course we get the We've got to have Morgan Edge say something mean about Superman. So we have Jimmy wondering why Superman is letting this happen. And Morgan Edge is pretty much calling Superman a quitter. And um, now Quig is on the boat. And they ask him how they know this is a good hydrogen bomb. It's because he's going to have someone test it. And until they bring him a good one, he will pretty much shoot hostages one by one until they finally get one. Of course he first notices Lois because she's so pretty and has him come over to her and they tell some really bad joke that I don't really get but it it makes Quig laugh which uh, gives Lois a chance to steal his gun and she's gonna shoot him and to show how different this Lois is from the army brat we've gotten used to in the post-crisis he pretty much talks her out of shooting him because she really wouldn't be able, really doesn't have the guts to do so. So he says that this, uh, they're going to end up shooting her and use that as a lesson. And if one of the uh, one of the other hostages uh, steps up and tells her not to harm, tells Quake not to harm her, to take him instead, and he says, "No way, get back with the rest." So the hostage moving faster than anyone can really see pretty much knocks quick out and t picks up Lois moves her to a safe place and we see that it's Superman in a disguise and he runs off because he says that Lois's dumb stunt has endangered the lives of the hostages and he runs off to t try to take care of the other of Quig's men and they shoot at him with bullets but he's recovered enough for, it to, for that to not hurt him anymore and he knocks them out and of course now the another thug is aiming that magma gun at the crowd so Superman uh, because he's partially regained some of his flight power is able to fly up underneath the platform the magma guns on and pretty much lifts it off of the platform preventing it from being shot however Quig has gotten over to the area where they control the lever that's holding the hydrogen bomb which is currently placed over the quote-unquote magma hole and he has he releases the hydrogen bomb into the hole which will hit the magma pocket and basically would destroy the world similar to the way Krypton was destroyed Superman thinking about the fact that this is the same way Krypton that this is similar to how Krypton would have been destroyed uh, without even thinking dives into the hole flying as fast as he can he's able to catch up to the bomb catches it uh, but, but his powers aren't what they used to be so he has to use his hands basically use digging his fingers into the side of this metal uh, pipe 
to slow himself down and using all the strength he can muster throws the hydrogen bomb back out of the porthole or back out of the tube then superman climbs out and quig desperate to stop him fires you know fires his fires a pistol at superman but superman says that doesn't bother me and with a quick punch he knocks out quig Lois attempts to interview him real quick, but Superman says, hang on a sec, i got to take care of something, and flies out over the ocean in time to catch the hydrogen bomb he threw a few panels earlier. And with that now secure, Superman realizes that he's that this just goes to show him that he's become a poor excuse for Superman, and he needs to get his powers back to full or die trying. And that is that issue. And I thought this was a pretty good story. Um, I mean, it showed Superman doing what he does, and he uses his brains a little bit more than just his powers. And uh, he was sneaking around. I mean, this is a pretty good Superman story. I did have a few problems with it, though. Uh, first of all, I do want to point out before I forget, this was has only been reprinted one time in the Kryptonite Nevermore hardcover. And eventually I'm going to get to a point where they aren't doing any of those anymore. But this one was reprinted in that book. On page 7 of the story, when Superman is talking to the sand creature, uh, last issue, and it was not only mentioned in captions, but in the way it was colored, and I know I mentioned it on the show, uh, the sand creature was colored, it had some red and blue, and basically it looked like he, I mean, he basically looked like Superman, but a little sketchier. This issue... While he still has the Superman symbol on his chest and he still looks like a sketchy sand creature, he's just the color of sand. There's no more red and blue to him. I don't know if it's a colorist mistake in this issue or if this is supposed to be that Superman did recover a little bit. So maybe he took some of the power back. I'm not sure. But that's, uh, I just wanted to point that out. Also, he talks a little differently than Superman. Superman seems to talk pretty much. Well, it's hard to say normal. This is a seven, an early 70s comic, and nothing is exactly normal compared to the way people talk, actually talk. But um, when he first shows up, uh, he tells Superman, come no further, lest you become yet more weakened, which just kind of sounds weird. But uh, yeah, the whole time, it's kind of like a stilted dialogue. It just sounds like really, like whoever wrote it really thought it out first which probably Denny O'Neill really thought it out. Uh, page 9. Um, I'm kind of surprised they gave him a real hydrogen bomb. Granted, I know, uh, granted he does mention that he had someone to check it out, but I can't believe anyone would give in to the demands. Then again, Quake does have control over the magma pocket and could cause a lot of damage to Earth, so in that case, or maybe they knew Superman was going to be there, so they figured, well, they could do it, take the chance because Superman, I'm not sure. Uh, on page 12, now I've read, I read this like twice just to make sure after I saw, after I read that line, but basically Lois's stunt really only endangers her. Her stunt, they were going to take her away and they were going to shoot her as a lesson to the others, not harming anyone else, just killing Lois. Superman saves her, reveals himself, and makes her hide and then blames Lois saying that her stunt endangered everybody but really it was Superman saving her and revealing himself that endangered all the others 
So I thought that was kind of odd and kind of mean on Superman's part, really. Um, page 13, it was pretty, it, it, you have to realize how extreme Quig was to be so desperate that he'd rather destroy the Earth than go to prison. Granted, he might be getting the chair or the death penalty of some kind, but it just, I mean, you've got, you've got to realize he was a spy. He knows secrets from pretty much, if he's double-crossed all world leaders, uh, that means he knows things that he should not know. And if there's one thing I've learned from watching like spy movies and conspiracy theory type things is that the, when, the, when you've got a spy, see the movie Red for this, but when you have someone that knows stuff that could be a dangerous, a big secret, the country doesn't usually want them alive. So not only does he have to watch out for being attacked by people, but he's also going to be arrested too. Uh, you can see how extreme that is and how desperate he must have been but to destroy the earth. Wow. Um, overall, though, uh, like I said, this was a good story. The art on this is a major step up from the last couple of issues. Um, this actually looks like really good Swanderson art. And I say Swanderson because that's, of course, the name that they used excuse me, that they eventually started using. That's how Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson came to be known eventually as Swanderson. Um, I found it ironic that when he, Superman, of course, is only able to leap, and most of the story is out of the ocean where there's hard, not that many places for him to land and then be able to jump again from, uh, because really water doesn't provide a good, you know, place to land and jump from. Anyway, um, I do want to point out, and I'm not going to read it because it's a very long letter, but uh, this issue actually reprints uh, or prints an, a letter written by Elliot S. Magan from Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. And unless there's another one, uh, this would probably this was most likely the Elliot S. Magan that eventually becomes a Superman writer as well as writer of several other DC comics, plus the two Superman novels from uh, that came out to coincide with the first two Superman movies, even though they weren't about the movies. Uh, the first one was Lesson of Krypton, and the second one was Miracle Monday, and would later go on to actually also uh, do the novelization for Kingdom Come. So it's cool to see a letter writer within a couple of short years. I mean, literally by 72, I believe, is when his first Superman story, or actually his first Green Lantern story too, or not Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I always get those two confused when I want to say their names. Um, but with just in a couple of years, he's going to be a writer for DC and be one of the two main Superman writers. So that was pretty cool. Everyone knows that baby Kal-El was sent from Krypton to Earth by his parents, Jor-El and Lara, shortly before the planet was torn apart by violent internal pressures. But what else do we really know about Krypton and its history? Journey with 
with us now as we explore the fabulous world of Krypton. Our backup story is called A Name is Born. The story is written by Carrie Bates, another important name to, hang, uh, to keep in mind for future episodes, with art by Gray Morrow, who I have mentioned a few times has done some of the covers for some of the more romance-type uh, comics published by DC at this time. And this time he's doing a nice uh, interior story, and I really like the art, but I'll get more into that in a minute. Anyway, what we're follow what we're doing here is we uh, see that the school term is commencing on Krypton, and we see a young teacher and an older teacher uh, driving apparently driving into school, and they have this really cool looking car. And as they're walking in, uh, the young female teacher is trying to say that uh, she ha hates the first day of class because she has a problem keeping her level one students under control, which I'm guessing is like kindergarten or first grade kind of thing. And the older teacher mentioned, uh, the older teacher's name is Duvor, and he mentions that there is a, a story that he knows that it keeps the children spellbound. And it's a story that began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far, oh wait, sorry, let me try that again. But it began long, long time ago before human life existed on Krypton. And at that point, Krypton was surrounded by a wispy crimson cocoon, which, of course, would later dissolve and left, leave the sky to be a fiery red. But at this point, it's just a gassy cocoon. We see a spaceship uh, that, of course, carries a space explorer um, flying through a rift in this red cocoon and landing on the planet. And, of course, the landing of the craft is, does not go unobserved because there's another alien who has already been on the planet and reading the Thought Balloon. And based on this, I'm wondering if the Thought Balloon was also done by the artist. Anyway, um, we learned that this alien that's already been here has been stranded on Krypton for a few days now. And a malfunctioning engine had forced it to crash land on Krypton. And they want to go up, uh, so the this astronaut, I guess we could call it, or space explorer, goes up to greet the one that has just landed. And they try to do nice things. And the, the, one, the first one, okay, before I keep going, this is going to be difficult if I don't do it this way. The one that has already been there is in a gold suit. Basically, it's white with orange and yellow, so I'm going to go with gold. And the one that has just landed is a warrior-type uh, space explorer wearing basically a white and blue suit. So I'm going to go with gold and blue here. But the, the one in gold is actually a cosmobiologist, is a cosmobiologist, and uh, just dry, uh, decides to, that is a peace offering, uh, to give over uh, this plant from their homeworld. And unfortunately, on Krypton, the atmosphere's rich mixture of gases make, made the twig grow and basically attack the creature, the alien in blue, who pulls out a blaster and fires and destroys it, but thinks that the explorer in gold uh, was trying to be hostile. So 
the warrior blue fires his blaster at the war uh, the warrior the explorer in gold who runs off fortunately one of the safety devices um, on the spacesuit actually allows it to absorb any ray blast and he eventually is able to uh, rid himself of the blast energy by touching a nearby boulder the space explorer in blue decides he's going to try a different tactic and is going to fire at the spacecraft that the explorer in gold came to the planet in and with one good shot pretty much destroys the ship and then they begin a physical combat um, now the one in gold is not able to fight nearly as well but due to of course uh, the, the one in gold does have uh, excelled agility and is able to do a quick leg toss as the warrior in gold tries to get away he gets stuck in a some kind of sticky suffocating syrup dripping down from the red cocoon that's of course surrounding the planet but the explorer in blue realizes that the explorer in gold was actually uh, kicked him out of the way to prevent him from also being stuck in the cocoon. So using his blaster, he blasts at the uh, cocoon, but it's not working because it can't get through it. Uh, however, since the one in gold can absorb the blast, uh, he absorbs the blast and is able to fire at it, is able to hit it from within. Basically, that allows it to melt. So the warrior in gold is allowed to get out, or the explorer in gold is able to get out. Uh, and then, of course, they do more signs of friendship. And as they head back to the, explore, uh, the Explorer in Blue's ship, we find that it's also covered in the cocoon. So they're going to be stuck there for quite a while. So the Explorer in Blue removes his helmet and tries to get the one in gold to understand his name, which is Crip. And the Explorer in Gold removes her helmet. Yes, it's a woman. And her name is Ton, T-O-N-N. So, of course, these are the two inhabitants of Krypton. And the entire Kryptonian race named the planet after them. And they're basically uh, Krypton's Adam and Eve, innocent. And uh, we find out at the end that the person telling the story is no longer Duvor, but the young teacher uh, and... It has spell, uh, left the kids spellbound, so that's pretty cool. Now, I don't have too many notes because while I wasn't very good at, review, at uh, synopsizing it, this was a great story. Uh, it was pretty concise. I didn't see any big errors in it. It all seemed to make sense. Granted, I don't know as much about Krypton's history. I don't know if they've explained how this happened yet, uh, but I thought this was a really good story. Uh, it's been reprinted twice, uh, one well, once in the Best of DC number 40, uh, and also again in Superman of the World of Krypton trade paperback. The artwork on this looks great. Uh, some of the shading that is used makes everything look really three-dimensional, and it it's just really good. And again, the story is pretty good. Uh, Carrie Bates uh, is going to be one of the other two of the two main writers on Superman and basically uh, has an almost uninterrupted um, kind of like a reign on the on one or the other Superman books from early 70s I want to say probably sometime in 72 
all the way up to maybe about 84, 85 before he starts uh, not having quite as many stories, but is still writing Superman. He basically is writing Superman up until the end uh, of the Bronze Age. So he's gonna his that is an, a Carrie Bates is a name I'm gonna be saying quite a bit on this show. But uh, that's it for that issue. Um, hope you enjoyed it. The next issue will be on sale on or around May 13th, so we'll be looking forward to that, even though technically the next issue already came out. Ah, I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, in any event, we have, uh, next up is World's Finest, number 203, which, of course, presents Superman and Aquaman. It's another June 1971 cover date. It's a 15-cent issue with a a pretty neat looking cover by uh, by Neil Adams. We see Aquaman laying near the ocean. Apparently, it looks like a wave is just receding. Uh, he's unconscious. We see Superman uh, waving around. His eyes are blank, as if he's blind, and he is shouting, "Aquaman, help me! I can't see!" And he, you see him trying to feel around, and he can't move. And we see three creatures walking off, which look like weird-looking creatures. I can't tell what they are from this, but it looks like they both, they all three have fins on their back, like a dolphin or a shark. And it's just saying the earth is now theirs. Although I would believe that probably there would have to be another hero somewhere that could stop them. But anyway, and this issue was released on April 27th, 1971. And the story is called Who's Minding the Earth? Uh, it was written by Steve Skeets, illustrated by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella, and edited by Julie Schwartz. And we start off, we see Super, uh, yeah, we see Aquaman uh, swimming through the ocean, basically looking like Superman flying through the air, and he sees a rainbow underwater, which makes no sense because you can't really see a rainbow underwater. So, and then all of a sudden, he, it's followed by some high-pitched buzzing. So he fo follows it up to the surface, onto an island, and ends up finding an oceanography lab that has been destroyed. He finds a couple of notes, and the paper he reads says, I realize now I should never have raised him, should never have tried to make him one of us. I have heard them talking. They plan to drown the world. But that's all it says. So, looking around a little bit more, uh, he can't find anything more and then realizes his hour is almost up. So, as he heads back to the ocean, because uh, as we know, Aquaman can't stay above the water for more than an hour without uh, needing to be back underwater. Basically, he's kind of almost like holding his breath when he's out of the water. Um, and all of a sudden, he sees these three creatures come up, and they look like... A combination human and dolphin. They have hands that look like fins and feet that look like flippers and a back fin and their faces they have the you know they look like dolphin noses and they walk really awkwardly outside of the water which though he can't he doesn't want to because of the cruelty he just starts laughing. Aquaman starts laughing at them which seems to really tick them off and suddenly he gets dizzy and lightheaded and the buzzing starts again and all of a sudden he passes out and they walk off 
much like the cover. And then, of course, by page four, we see we are presenting an epic world's finest adventure, co-starring Superman and Aquaman. And we're now in Metropolis, as Superman has finished uh, a news broadcast. And uh, fortunately, um, he mentions that they just had to finish interviewing a writer named O'Neill and had to blip out every other word he said, as he sees uh, a man in a trench coat and a hat similar to the outfit he was basically wearing when he was out on that uh, Project Magma uh, assaulting a gentleman asking where, uh, where he is where is he and so Clark walks over to see if there's something he can help with and so he uh, basically it's not really assault when I say assault he basically has his hands on him is like shaking him where can I find him where can I find him and so he asks Clark and and he says something is getting ready to happen inside of him or no, he thinks to himself that it's too late it's beginning to happen and he's got to get back to the island so Clark goes after him and suddenly he hears this high-pitched buzzing and everyone in the area seems to go somewhat at least somewhat blind including Clark so he switches to Superman which he can do because of course no one can really see him anyway and through the haze he also sees that the man or that the man inside the trench in the trench coat uh, takes off the coat and then all of a sudden splits into two beings and they two of them run off Superman tries to give chase uh, but bumps into a car and uh, he realizes he's caused trouble and the car is out of control now whether it's because of the blindness or because of Superman bumping it uh, they don't really make clear but of course Superman's got to stop the car now he eventually does but uh, he's lost sight of the two strangers that ran off and Superman tries to use his telescopic vision but unfortunately that just makes the haze worse soon though the haze clears up and Superman flies out on their trail and is able to spot the two creatures swimming really quickly like guided missiles through the water and they're headed for an island which Superman looks ahead and sees Aquaman passed out and, real, and after some checking he realizes that Aquaman apparently needs to get to the water so Superman dunks him into the water which of course saves, uh, Superman saves Aquaman's life and uh, once Superman brings him to, uh, they come back to the surface, and Aquaman pretty much explains what happened to him a few pages ago, and Superman explains what happened to him, and suddenly they're attacked by, not attacked, but they see another one of those creatures, and this one actually talks. He says, uh, Superman, at last. And of course, Aquaman warns him not to laugh. This one explains that he's not here as an enemy, but as a friend and he explains how his story came to be and in a page that looks like it's the beginning of another story we see a small creature that actually looks kind of cute uh, but basically it's this guy as a child he's still got the flipper feet and the flipper hands and a small fin on his back his nose isn't quite as pronounced and his eyes are huge so he looks you know like a cute little kid uh, he's discovered by two people on a boat one of them's a scientist and they take, or at least both of them are actually, 
and they take him back to the lab to examine him. And basically, he's just a normal human child, but looks like a dolphin. Um, on, other than the fact that uh, he grows up really quickly, and instead of taking years, it took months to reach adolescence, and he even got acne. Uh, and they taught him how to talk, and he also realized he had uh, sonic powers, which uh, he could concentrate to pro project heat, like heat vision. And could also create beauty like underwater rainbows. But he realized that he was, uh, but unfortunately, he was very different. Uh, he walked weird because of his body, but he was able to swim very well. And of course, he was always laughed at. So he got very upset one day and very down in the dumps. And all of that got to him, and he actually split into two. Except, unlike him, his double basically didn't have any of his love, only his hatred for mankind. And his double continued to split off, as did this guy. He, he also continued to keep splitting. But all these doubles only had hate. And their idea was they're going to use their sonic heat to melt the polar ice caps, flooding the world, which will, of course, cause everyone to drown and make the earth uh, make basically put the entire earth under the sea and allowing them domination over everything even though aquaman's the king of the seven seas but we won't get into that so they decide they need to go underwater uh, to swim to the island or the part of the island or to the polar ice caps to capture all of his quote-unquote brothers so the three heroes dive into the water and they eventually get to this uh, kind of rock formation, and one of them apparently, even though they shouldn't know how to talk, I guess they all know how to talk, and he tells them that they, you know, basically does the speech about how they need to do this, and humans suck, and all that stuff, and he looks at the, looks over and sees that someone's approaching and sees there are three heroes, so using their sonic powers, they start to attack. Um, Superman realizes he's got to concentrate and keep them from entering his mind. Of course, this should be our first clue that something exactly that that exact thing is about to happen. And uh, suddenly, Superman looks up in the sky and sees something and flies off, but Aquaman doesn't see it. So Superman says, "He'll handle it. You handle the dolphin guys." So Superman and we what we see is this giant monstrous being which looks really, really ugly. And it's some kind of, as Superman calls it, a synthetic sonic monster. And Superman tries to punch it, but of course every time he's about to punch it, it moves so he can't touch it. Um, and back under the water, we see Aquaman and the other fish guy uh, attacking the quote-unquote brothers. And they're not having a good time of it. Uh, Let's see. Uh, so Aquaman's going to create a diversion by summoning some fish and a giant whale. And hiding inside the whale is Aquaman, who is able to get the jump on them using a quote-unquote Trojan whale trick. <laughs> and uh, is able to knock out a bunch of them. And uh, while he's doing that, Superman is back up over the surface and realizes that the creature's getting smaller. And when he finally hits it, his fist goes through it, but it disappears. 
and he real and finally realizes that this creature was only in his mind, and looks back down to see that Aqu Aquaman seems to be doing a good job, and figures that because Aquaman has finally was able to, you know, knock out some of these guys, that that's excuse me that that's why the creature suddenly disappeared. So Aqu uh, Superman gets back to the water, and also helps with the fight, and quickly they knock out all of the evil dolphin guys. But they don't know what they're going to do, but Superman has a few things to say to them and calls them fools and tells them that they they could have done something to prove they weren't a joke, but went about things the wrong way. However, he can't just let them die or kill them, so he's going to help them and get some protective clothing, which you don't actually see because on the next page, even though you can actually sort of tell they're wearing pants, it looks like maybe your shorts, uh, they're still colored all gray, and Superman flies them off, and Aquaman, uh, using a thought bubble, basically tells us that he's going to take, that Superman's going to fly them off to an uninhabited but habitable world, that they can have all their own, and they're going to have a population explosion, so it doesn't take long to populate the whole thing, and Aquaman basically swims off into the ocean, and that's the end. And this one is interesting. It's not a bad story, but it's not a really good story. Um, now, this one, of course, was uh, not, not of course, but this issue was reprinted in Best of DC number thirteen. Um, I thought it was interesting on page four uh, when they when I and I read this to you that the co-star Superman and Aquaman. Well, for some reason, uh, the Superman logo looks like Dick Dillon must have drawn it. But the Aquaman logo looks like the official Aquaman logo shown on Aquaman comics. Well, of the time period, anyway. So that was weird. It's kind of like not fair since this is Superman's book. Um, and once again, when we saw Clark, again, he's got the spit curl. I don't know why they're not fixing that. Um, why no one's telling Dick Dillon that Clark doesn't have the curl but still has it. Um, also, um, I like the little in-joke about O'Neill. I don't know his history about whether or not he really does cuss a lot, um, but I thought it was kind of funny that they do kind of make fun of him. And he, oh, also, I wanted to mention Steve Skeets um, was the writer on the Aquaman book. So, again, um, they bring in the writer that basically writes the uh, Oh, well, actually, this is the second time they've done this for Steve, because I don't think Daniel Neal was writing Flash when he um, wrote the Flash story. But of course, Daniel O'Neill was also writing Green Lantern and wrote the Superman team up with him. He was also writing Batman and wrote the team up story with him. And then Steve Skeets was writing the uh, Robin backups, so he wrote the Robin and Superman story. And then now he's writing the Aquaman one. So I thought that I think it's pretty cool how they're doing that. Uh, they're using the writer to make sure they get the right voice for the uh, guest character. Um, on panel one on page eight, um, and it's not a huge thing, but Aquaman kind of loses his gloves. He basically, uh, he has his gloves the panel before on the last, on page seven. He has his gloves on panel two. But on panel one, uh, Superman, uh, Aquaman, basically, he has his sleeves go up to his hands, and that's it. You don't see gloves. Uh, no big deal. I just wanted to point that out. Um, page 9, like I said, it sounds, looks like the beginning of a new story. Uh, literally, it does. The, just the uh, look of the art on the actual on the character as a child uh, totally uh, looks different. Um, really does look like maybe, I don't know, 
who would have drawn that? But it looks the artwork looks a little different, and it's got a title, The Laugh Riot, which is written differently than any of the other uh, writing on in the rest of the story. And um, it basically looks like the first page of some Silver Age, maybe Golden Age even story, with no credits. It's pretty interesting. Like they took that story and pasted it on here as the origin, like it was uh, one of those, what you want to call it? I can't think of the actual term off the top of my head, but it's like one of those stories that um, they, file, they get it and then file it away for later to put in what they need it. And they were like, hey, look, we found this story. I wonder if we can write a story around this. So they did that. I don't think they've done that here. I can't find anything that says that they did, but it just looked like it based on that. Um, but because, especially since it has its own title. Um, let's see, page 14. Uh, now, remember I mentioned that Superman looks up and sees something? Well, literally, he write, he says, up in the, up in the sky, it's a thing. I actually laughed a little bit because it's like it's almost like it's try, they're trying to play with the whole up in the sky. It's super, you know, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. But he just goes, it's a thing, and there's literally like the three dot thing, the three periods. I don't remember the official term for that, but uh, it's a thing. I thought that was funny. On page 15, uh, when Superman's trying to attack the Sonic Monster, uh, he literally just looks like he's flailing around, like he wouldn't do a darn thing. It looks like he's just twisting and flinging and flailing and I don't know what that's supposed to do other than look ridiculous. On page 18 um, we see that Aquaman's knocked out like five or six guys but the way his pose is I can't possibly see how he did that and they don't have any and there's no motion lines drawn in to show how he did it. Usually you know they have the motion lines to actually connect to show how the how his fist would have hit the, all the characters, but they don't show that here, so it's kind of weird. Uh, on page 21, um, I like how to end the fight, we actually see Superman literally just tap real nice on the on the last guy to knock him out. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and that's the basically all I've got on that story. Um, I do want to point out that uh, by this point, um, April 1971, uh, Aquaman's book had been canceled. Um, he was still showing up in, in the Justice League, but he no he was no longer uh, had his own solo book. It will pick up. It does pick up again uh, with the resuming the same numbering in 1977. Uh, but this is the last. Uh, the, by the point by the time this issue came out, he no longer had that solo book anymore. And um, also, um, I thought I'd point out uh, because. This is where the inconsistencies start kicking in um, regarding Superman, the new era of Superman, uh, because Superman's losing his powers in the Superman book, but it's not really reflected in the others, and this is another uh, uh, a showing of that. Even though it's edited by Julie Schwartz again, so you would think there would be some consistency, uh, Superman appears to be at full power here, not even mentioning that his powers have been diminished. So I don't know if that, maybe they'll pick up on that later, but at this point, they're not pointing that out. Um, also, um, again, uh, we have another famous letter hack. Um, Martin Pasco once again, has, an, had a, has a letter printed in this issue. Again, I'm not going to read it because it's rather long, uh, but he's basically talking about uh, it, World's Finest 200. And... Um, and the little interview that they have in it, but 
yes, it's Martin Pasco again. So, and I've already gone on about him a few times. So, that's pretty cool that we have two future Superman writers having their letters printed in the same month. Um, so, way to go, Julie, to look ahead at that. And um, what I'm going to do now is go, I'll go ahead and uh, play some promos for you. And when we come back, we'll get Action Comics. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. Sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays. Available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio. A new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. 
supermanhomepage.com. Okay, thanks for coming back. And we've got Action Comics number 401, which uh, is another June 1971 cover date. This issue was released on April 29th, 1971. The cover is, again, by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson. Uh, but according to the notes I found, they actually got Kurt to come in and do some touch-ups on the Superman body. It's hard to tell, but I can see it. The title of this story is called Invaders Go Home. The writer is Leo Dorfman. The artist by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor this time is Murray Boltonoff. Uh, Superman again, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And none of the stories in this issue are reprinted ever. Or yet, anyway. But we see on the cover, this I mean, it looks like a four Native Americans. Uh, and we see they're carrying a large uh, branch or stick or wooden pole. And Superman's tied to it. And they're basically carrying him away. And he looks powerless, maybe unconscious. And in the background, we see a couple more Native Americans. And the sun setting in the background. And a large mountain. And... You gotta wonder how this happened. So, um, so it's an interesting and intriguing cover. So, as far as the story inside, um, what we we start off, uh, we have a Pioneer Week celebration in the southwest of southwestern United States, because it is the anniversary of the day that area became American territory. And of course, Clark is there uh, to film. The celebration for his news program, and we see what looks like uh, was it five, yes, five Native Americans um, going to attack, quote unquote, attack. Uh, Clark thinks it's part of the show, and they're on motorcycles. But suddenly they start shooting arrows at the train, and the people on board are panicking. So Clark realizes this is not a show. Superman needs to take care of this. So Superman, uh, so he changes to Superman and flies off and flies up ahead and realizes that the train is headed for a bridge and the bridge uh, has fire and flames. So Superman realizes he's got to save the day and he flies up under the lead car on the train, lifts it up and flies it around the corner. But it turns out that the bridge really isn't on fire. Uh, it's an artificial harmless message uh, they're using the train uh, bridge to, uh, you know, as quote-unquote their sign, and it says, Invaders Go Home, which, of course, is the title of the story. Uh, so Superman lands the train back on the tracks and allows it to continue while the Indians, or while the Native Americans, uh, get back on their motorcycles and drive off. And he, uh, meanwhile, Superman talks to the sheriff and finds out that it's the war cry of the no, of the local Navajo Indians, which are descendants of a tribe which once owned this land, and they consider everyone else living there invaders. So he's trying to get rid of them. They're trying to get rid of them. So Superman decides he's going to see if he can track them down. And we oh we also learned that the Navarros are trying or demanding that all of their territory be returned to them. So Superman flies off and uses his X-ray vision to find faint rubber tread marks on the ground from the motorcycles and follows them to a rock face below a cliff dwelling. And tunneling through the rock, he finds himself inside of a cave where the same young men, young uh, Native Americans who attacked the train are standing. And he realizes that the leader is a young man, is a young man named Don Hawks. 
of the astrophysical labs on the coast. But he says that he's not that anymore. He's reclaimed his old name of Red Hawk and has returned and takes Superman on top of a towering mesa and shows them his the land, which we see looks like a large canyon surrounded by trees. It looks very beautiful, uh, very nature and serene-like. Serene uh, but he also shows that tell Superman that uh, the invaders have come, uh, the white settlers, the invaders, have stolen it piece by piece. And the once proud tribe uh, are now beggars living on handouts, grubbing the dry earth for a few shriveled stalks of corn. And of course, Superman is kind of upset by this. And next, uh, Red Hawk takes Superman to this. Uh, to a hut where uh, a school is in session. It's a special school they just organized. So that's interesting. And uh, Superman is, of course, attracted by the young woman named Moonflower, who is the teacher. And she's showing them how things have changed in the area. And it turns out these Indians are the ones that discovered the food crops, as, such as corn and potatoes in the area, and knew about irrigation and terracing before the white man showed up. And um, they, she points out that they had their own Superman, the mighty Montezuma, ruler of the great Aztec Empire. But history says he is dead, but, the, but they believe he will return and lead their people to a glorious future. And it turns out that there's one more thing they have to show them. So after the class ends, uh, Red Hawk and Moonflower ride a motorcycle as Superman follows along flying. And they head to the plateau that used to be known as Montezuma's Castle. And they see all of, the, all of these Native Americans uh, picketing, picketing. And it turns out that the government has leased this land uh, to General Rocket and Aerodynamic Bases, Inc., uh, or GRAB for short. And they're basically turning Montezuma's home into a rocket testing site. And, of course, Superman doesn't think that's fair. So he talks to the uh, head guy of the project and says that he can build a bigger and better base anywhere else in the U.S. But the man in charge points out that... Uh, they won't cater to Navarro's ingrained superstition. Apparently, the weather the weather patterns in the area are the most stable in the country, which is, makes it perfect for rocket tests. And for the good of America, he has to build there. So Red Hawk believes the only answer is force, but an old uh, Native American called Old Snake, a medicine man, believes that he can use his sand paintings and magic spells to make them change their mind. So Superman watches closely as the uh, medicine man uh, begins his work. He draws some lightning and uses some dust to create that it's going to be a, a thunderstorm. Of course, there's no clouds or anything nearby, and Superman flies off laughing. Uh, moments later, we see a large thunderstorm, lightning storm, uh, come over the area. And there's lightning shooting all over the place, and it hasn't caused any damage, but there's definitely a lightning storm. Superman is able to take the arms off of a couple of cranes and holds them up to the, excuse me, and holds them up into the sky, and using them and 
his invulnerable body, he creates a large lightning rod to attract all the bolts so it causes no damage, and then quickly repairs the arms of the cranes and flies off. And of course, Red Hawk believes that this isn't right because Superman's saving the day instead of helping them, but of course, uh, Moonflower admires him for doing his job. So, of course, Red Hawk believes that this was just a coincidence, it's not part of the magic even though Moonflower tries to convince him that it, did, that it could be. And he did, uh, the Medicine Man decides he's going to try something even more, so he's going to create uh, summoning the Wind God. And, of course, that can't happen in that area. But the next day, tornadoes show up in the area and also basically attacks the rocket base. And... But Superman once again shows up and flying counter to the actual to the spin of the tornado, he's able to unravel it kind of into a mild breeze, and then he begins repairing everything at the rocket base, which also again upsets Red Hawk because Superman's not helping them. <clears throat> uh, Superman goes back over to the Medicine Man and tells him that his old magic is working well, and we learned that the lightning storm was actually from Superman. He had flown off, found that electrical storm, and using his super breath, blew it over the base, and then created the tornado, and then put it out so that, and pretty much fixed any damage he, that was caused, and is trying to find a way to scare uh, scientists from building the rocket base there. Uh, so next... Uh, the, the medicine man draws a great turtle, which will shake the earth and drive the invaders from our land. And there's, and of course, Red Hawk again says there's no way he's going to start an earthquake. And the next day at dawn, the earthquakes, and we actually see a rocket looks like it's going to tumble. Everyone's scared, and we find out that again it's Superman uh, stomping on the ground, shaking the earth. Unfortunately, the excitement. Uh, causes Old Snake to uh, have a heart attack and die. Uh, meanwhile, in a little bit, Superman returns and is able to patch things up, but uh, quickly learns that, unfortunately, Old Snake has passed away, which means that um, and we learned that the old that the uh, guy in charge of the rocket base is Haldane, and or Haldane, sorry, and it, uh, since obviously he's dead, uh, there, no one's going to be causing any more magic problems, so there's no way he's going to leave the area, which means that Superman has failed. Superman's going to fly off, but Red Hawk tells him, uh, no, they've, uh, he, Red Hawk's learned some of the secrets uh, of Old Snake's magic, and wants Superman to sh uh, show up at the cave dwelling tonight. So Superman says he'll be there. Doesn't really give a time, just says he'll be there. And that night at the ancient cave dwelling, Superman does show up, and uh, Red Hawk uh, draw, uses the magic sand or whatever to draw a Superman symbol, and has a red jewel that he places inside the painting. And then all of a sudden he tells his brothers to seize Superman because he's the enemy who helped the invaders. Uh, Superman says, you can't be serious, I can... I can handle these guys with just one pinky, 
but of but somehow his uh, he finds himself powerless as the Native Americans pretty much tackle him, restrain him, and tie him up and hang him on that hang him on the stick much like on the uh, cover and walk off with him. Basically, they're going to hold him as ransom, and unless they return their uh, the land to the Navarros. They will kill Superman. And um, so that's interesting. So that, that, that sets up a really good cliffhanger. I'm actually impressed. This is a really good story. Um, I found it very entertaining. Uh, I like the mystery. They, do expl they explain one mystery pretty quick. Um, but I do think it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting story. This is one of the best ones Leo Dorfman has done up, up to this point anyway. And um, I'm really excited excited to see how Superman gets out of this one. I'm interested to see uh, what happens. Um, on page four of this story, uh, Superman says he uses his x-ray vision to find a faint track. Now, I would think Superman's x-ray vision would actually look through the rock or this asphalt or whatever, but not really work as far as seeing the faint tire track maybe microscopic vision would do that uh, but certainly not x-ray vision um, page 12 and 13 uh, we like I mentioned during the earthquake it looks like that fall that there's a rocket on the base and it looks like it's falling over and on the next page we see Superman pushing it back up now I guess he shows up before it actually hits the ground but I would think that if it hit the ground you know there'd be a huge explosion. Superman would be all kinds of upset with himself and all that. I don't know what exactly happened to it. We don't actually see it fall over, but that's kind of dangerous. And I would think Superman would mess with the place, would do something that would cause that kind of trouble. Uh, page 13, uh, we see Old Snake die. But Halliday doesn't really care. In fact, I write on here that he's kind of like a heartless bastard. Uh, but Old Snake dies, and he says he dies of a heart attack. Now I don't have to worry anymore about that. His blasted magic sand paintings, but nothing like you know, sad to see him go, or, or I'm sorry he died, or anything like that. He's just mean. Uh, page 15. Um, now, like I said, now, okay. Page 15. We see that Superman has lost his powers, and they've got him tied up. And Red Hawk's planning on uh, using him. Uh, to as leverage to get the land back. However, um, basically it's probably pretty simple to find a, some guy, put him in a Superman costume, and tie him up so that, and then try to hold him hostage. Um, but I would think that before the government would give the it, these Native Americans anything, they would have to have proof that it's Superman which would be pretty hard to prove if he doesn't have his powers. On the other hand, if they give him back his powers, obviously Superman's going to leave. So this is not one of the best plans, but in any event. Now I do want to mention on a side note, uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with the story other than the whole uh, Native American thing, but um, I, I found out doing some research that back in around 1954, Kurt Swan actually submitted uh, a comic strip called Yellow Hair uh, for syndication. 
and it was all about a Native American tribe. Uh, he did two weeks worth of the strips, uh, but it never sold, and which apparently pretty much upset him. Um, this was a short time where he had decided that he was leaving. He left comics for a little bit. Um, partially, it turns out, because of some migraines he was getting from working for Mort Weisinger. But um, he left comics for a little bit. He tried uh, some advertising work. He tried oil paintings, and while he was good at both, uh, they didn't pay enough or as regularly as the comic work. And it's and he tried the, the submitting this comic strip, but of course it didn't get picked up. And he eventually made his way back to the comics, figured out a way to get past the whole problem with working by with Mark Weisinger by pretty much telling him he's not going to listen to his crap anymore, kind of standing up to him. So all that got taken care of, but um, I did want to point that. So he's got some experience with this uh, Native Americans. He might have been able to give some of his research stuff over to Leo for the story. But in any event, uh, the backup story in this issue is called The Boy Who Begged to Die, with a story written by Carrie Bates. And art by Kurt Swan Murphy Anderson. It's another Carrie Bates story. You'll notice he's the backup on both books this month, or both of the main books this month, which is pretty cool. And uh, we open up on the a Sunday morning in the serene, serene town of Masonville. And it's a Sunday morning, and it almost looks like a town hall slash church. But um, we see a crowd of people gathered around some kind of smoking something that has fallen out of the sky, and someone runs off to call the science institute to see what they'll, if they'll know what to do with it. Yeah. Superman flies, just happens to be flying by, uh, by overhead on his patrol and he spots a disturbance and as soon as he sees what everyone's looking at he tells them to get away quickly. It's a strange meteorite that is uh, not like any specimen he's seen in all of his space travels. Uh, he picks it up to do some uh, investigating with his x-ray vision and it turns out the radiation from this x-rays has ignited an some unstable elements inside. If he moves so much as a micro inch the rock will explode so he can't let go. And he believes it can wipe the whole town off the map so he tells everyone they need to get out of there quickly and they get to the they call the police and eventually pretty quickly in fact we see the entire town uh, evacuating. Superman's still standing in the middle of town holding the rock and, so, and we also see that he realizes that for every minute the meteor is exposed to the air uh, that its destructive force will increase uh, so it may go off sooner than he thought but every second he holds it it the, means the explosion is going to be bigger and bigger so the sheriff try we see the sheriff drive by and tell Superman there's that the entire town's empty, there's no one in town within a mile. So he tells the sheriff that he gives he'll give him two minutes to get out of town uh, and reach safety before he drops the rock. Then of course Superman begins to doubt himself, wondering if the rock has become po uh, powerful enough now to be uh, to explode beyond the mile limit. But he can't think about that now. He's got five more seconds, so about two minutes is up. And you get down to five, four, three, two, one, and suddenly Superman spots a young boy with a cast uh, on crutches, hobbling up. 
Turns out he was at the basement of the orphanage working on his model ships and was left behind. Uh, Superman tells him he's got to get out of town, but of course the kid can't because he will hobble. And the longer it takes for him to get out of town, just more destructive the rock's going to be. Uh, and we, of course, we cut to outside of town where the sheriff sees that the town has there's no been no explosion yet. Uh, he's wondering what's going on. And meanwhile, the kid pretty much tells him that he's uh, Superman's got to forget about him and just let go of the rock, even though it means he's going to die. He doesn't want to make things worse. But Superman, of course, begins sweating because he has vowed to give up his Superman career if he ever knowingly took a human life. Uh, and of course, he sees people, you know, being pretty much talking bad, smack about him because of, of killing him. And sees people dying because he's retired and was not there to protect them. And then, of course, he also notices, he also thinks about the fact that because, uh, because of how long he's waiting, it could mean that the, even the people that have evacuated aren't safe, and when it finally blows up, even they will die. So he basically has one against millions or thousands, but Superman just cannot bring himself to drop the rock. So the kid comes up and tries to make him. He kicks it with his good foot, does nothing, smashes it, smashes at the rock with his fist, tries to smash it with his uh, with one of his crutches, but it just breaks the crutch and realizes that he's not going to be able to make a Superman budge. So he's going to, so he takes Superman's cape and decide, and pretty much decides he's going to hang himself. But Superman decides that there's nothing you can do now except, and then we see a large explosion that basically wipes the town of Masonburg off the map. And fortunately, it, while it gets close, it doesn't actually knock out any of the townspeople, so they're safe. Meanwhile, in the wreckage, uh, we see Superman walking around, mentioning how that if his timing wasn't perfect, he's a murderer. And amid the, the debris, uh, Superman finds the young boy wrapped up in Superman's cape. He's badly bruised and injured, but he's alive. Now, the boy is wondering how Superman was able to save him, and Superman tells him that he saved himself because by grabbing the... It, Superman's indestructible cape. He was able to use his super breath uh, to blow the cape so it covered the kid and shield him from the effects of the blast when he dropped the rock. And of course now Superman fly, picks up the boy and flies into the nearest hospital before he begins the monumental task of rebuilding Masonville from scratch. And this isn't a bad story. Um, better than some of the backups we've had. I don't have a whole lot of notes on this. Um, but basically, I, I want to point out a couple things. Page three, um, when we see everyone evacuating, now I don't think it's fair that we see basically what looks like a pickup truck. The back of the pickup truck has a whole bunch of kids. They might be in their teens, I'm thinking. Meanwhile, outside of the truck, we see some older people. They look like maybe they're late 50s, early 60s maybe, and they're walking. And they're supposed to be getting a mile away. That just doesn't seem fair. They should have the older people inside the truck while the younger people are walking. It's just the way it should work, but it doesn't. Um, I thought it was interesting uh, when we see, first see the kid on page four. He's got Superman's spit curl. In fact, basically, he looks quite a bit like uh, the way Kurt Swan draws a uh, young Superboy, uh, but the, the hair is colored brown, and there's a little bit more of it than we normally see uh, Superboy uh, wearing. 
But uh, yeah, so basically we have a, a kid that looks like he wants to be Superman, so that's pretty cool. It is really sad that no one checked the freaking basement of the orphanage before they evacuated, and this kid was basically forgotten. I kind of feel really bad for him. Um, but overall, like I said, it was a good story. Um, again, Superman appears to be at full power to have been able to take the force of that explosion. Uh, okay, this explosion destroys a whole town, and he suffers no ill effects. But in Superman 238, we saw him take a torpedo, and it made him dizzy. Uh, so again, we have inconsistencies. Uh, also, um, basically, there is one thing that I have to ask. Um, if this was such a good idea, why didn't Superman have someone grab his cape and wrap it around his hands and the rock? That way, Superman, even if he dropped it at super speed before it could really cause anything, Superman could probably grab his cape and hold it and the explode. The it's a stretchable, indestructible cape, so it should contain the entire explosion. Preventing Superman from having to worry about rebuilding the town. But instead, he doesn't do that. The kid ends up getting needlessly hurt again, because he's already on crutches with a leg and a cast. But he ends up getting needlessly hurt again. The entire he's, Superman's going to have to rebuild the town. And it, and it puts these people in fear and has to evacuate the town all pointlessly. Superman really had just had, the, had it all wrapped around him. Hell. It's a, it's an indestructible, stretchable cape. Wrap it around Superman's whole body. You know? And, yeah. I, I don't know. But basically, Superman could have... There, there's other ways he could have done it. Now, I don't no slight to Kirk Carey Bates, but there are other ways. I like how he was able to save the kid by get, like, using his super breath to basically blow the cape on him. But... There's other ways they could have done about that. But anyway, uh, but that's it for the issue. All in all, it's a pretty good month for Superman books. Um, and now we're going to do the Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse. Um, so for, look at the other issues that were on sale in uh, April 1971. We've got The Forever People, number three. And uh, apparently we get introduced to... Glorious Godfrey, who becomes pretty important uh, about 15, seven, uh, 16 years later during the Legends crossover. Uh, we get House of Secrets number 92. Now, this is a cover that I have seen. It's a Carrie, no, it's a Bernie Wrightson cover. And I want to say this is the first appearance of Swamp Thing. It looks like it. Um. I'm not saying it, but we see the young, la uh, young lady um, combing her hair and swamp things walking in. Uh, it's written by, let's see, who's it written by? Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, who, turn, uh, who are the creators of Swamp Things. So I'm thinking this is the first uh, time we see Swamp Things, so that's pretty cool. It's a, it's a cover I've seen reprinted a lot of times. Uh, we get Our Army at War featuring Sergeant Rock, number 233. We have Swing with Scooter, number 34. Um, and we do have something on here uh, featuring another uh, celebrity of the time, 
Warning, trouble ahead for Rick. Ellie? Eli? E-L-Y. Ellie? Eli? I don't know how to say that. But it's a 64-page book. Uh, apparently it's, I would imagine it looks like it's all new. Um, we have Secret Hearts number 152 with a special uh, story about where to meet boys. And this one actually features a Don Heck cover, which we haven't seen much of before. Uh, we have All-Star Western number 6 featuring Outlaw, Billy the Kid Killer, plus a Wild Bill Hickok story. Uh, that's pretty cool. It's got a cover by Tony DeZuniga. So that's interesting. We have uh, Binky number 79, which is another 25-page, uh, no, 64-page, 25-cent book. Uh, this one has a has some weight. I guess it's an interview uh, with those five groovy guys, the Osmond brothers. Before there was Donnie and Marie, there were the Osmond brothers. I actually saw four of them because Donnie's become more famous. But I actually got to see four of them once uh, performing in Branson, Missouri when I was a kid. So that was interesting. Um, then Girls Romances, number 157. And this one features something that t tells you how does a girl meet her dream man. That's right. That secret's finally revealed, kids. Um, we have Superboy, number 175. Doomsday for a Super Phantom. And this one, um, I, I kind of like this one. This looks like basically we see Superboy in a field. And much like the promo art for Smallville, uh, when it first was going to premiere, uh, he's tied up to like a scarecrow post. And uh, it's hanging there. And now this version, it looks like... Um, Superboy is withering away. His uh, costume's all kinds of loose on him, and we see a phantom version of him floating off of him as the kids are behind him telling him that um, while they can have his body, this, his spirit and superpowers belong to him, and it's some crazy-looking guy, ninja person. But, so that made me think of small, though, other than the spirit and the kids being... Anyway, uh, we have... Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 138, uh, featuring uh, everyone's in this one. It's called The Big Boom. Uh, and again, like I've mentioned on the other issues, uh, if you want to hear a review of that or see a review of that, make sure you go to supermanhomepage.com. And uh, if you go to their classic pre-crisis reviews, uh, I just submitted, in fact, I it was just put on the site a couple days ago as I record this. Um, the final, uh, I finally finished reviewing all of the Jimmy Olsen issues that were created by Jack Kirby. I'm not sure what I'm going to review next for the site. I want to try to get a little more ahead on the sh on my on this show first, so that I don't have these long Kev what I call the Kevin Smith type delays, uh, where it's like a couple months between reviews. Considering it's just a review, it's not like I have to wait for art or anything. So. Um, I'm going to wait a little bit before I start submitting it, before I look into that. But um, make sure you check that one out. Uh, we have Witching Hour, number 15. We have GI Combat, number 148. And this looks like another 25-cent, 64-page book. Uh, we have Young Romance, number 
172 with another Don Heck cover. He must have just come over from Marvel or something. Um, and the art on this doesn't look quite as good, but according to this, Vinnie Coletta inked it, so that might be part of the problem. Um, let's see. And this has a contest which will allow you to win money. So, yes, it's got seven big love stories in it. That's right. And uh, let's see. We have Brave and the Bold, number 96, which features Batman and Sergeant Rock. And we see Sergeant Rock apparently shoot Batman, which isn't very good. Uh, we get Batman, number 232, featuring the Daughter of the Demon, which uh, is pretty famous because not only is this the issue that uh, introduces Rachel Ghoul for the first time, but it also is... Um, adapted for the Batman the Animated Series uh, as I believe it's called the Demon maybe Demon's Head Part 1 uh, but it's adapted for that uh, for Batman the Animated Series um, and it's one of my favorite episodes uh, if you can I suggest you check it out uh, we have Flash number 207 uh, and Again, this is a Neil Adams cover, and it looks really cool. And it also has a Kid Flash story as the backup. We get Heartthrobs, number 132. And this is this issue, not only do you get a fun stories about four of them, but you also get to test yourself, are you the type boys go for? And now this cover is interesting. Um, we see this girl, basically, uh, she's letting this guy kiss on her neck and we actually get to see that that's weird meanwhile we get these two guys in the background that look a little chummier than guys normally are on a night on an early 1970s comic um but yeah that's interesting um not that there's anything wrong with that but you don't usually see that on the early 1970s cover um uh, we have star spangled war stories number 157 Featuring the Hammer of Hell. We have From Beyond the Unknown, number 11, which again looks to be another 64 page reprint issue. And this one involves the invaders from the space satellites and has a Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson cover. And then we have uh, Orion of the New Gods, number, number 3 which appears to introduce the Black Racer in his red, yellow, and blue costume, which is just weird looking. I, but my first, okay, let me tell you where I'm coming from with this. My first introduction to the Black Racer was some Superman issues written uh, in 1990 that involved um, I think it's called Soul Search. It was a three-part story. Uh, Jimmy Olsen and Jerry White, which was Perry White, Perry and Alice White's son, had been shot, and they were in the hospital. And this demon called Blaze is trying to get their souls down in hell, or a facsimile of hell. And the Black Racer shows up and leads Superman to hell, but he can't help him, so he, excuse me, leaves, and Superman fights in hell to basically save Jimmy and Jerry. Well, up in the surface world, uh, Gangbuster, 
uh, another hero in Metropolis, Jose Delgado, is fighting Blaze on the surface because uh, there's this club called Blazes, and it turns out it's actually Blaze in the disguise, and he's fighting to stop that from being burned down, and the Black Racer helps him there too. So, um, and we learned that Jerry White's girlfriend, or ex, I guess, by that point at the time, is actually the sister of the guy that is the Black Racer. And in that, basically his costume looks like it's just all silver metal. But in this, it still looks kind of metallic, but it's red. And he's got, looks like he's got his arms. Or he's got bright yellow gloves and a bright yellow cape. He's got blue chest armor and kind of like outside underwear armor and blue boots. But the legs and arms are red and the helmet is red. And it's just not what I'm used to. I, I'm sorry, but it just looks weird to me. But it looks really cool on the cover because what we've got is a photo cover in the background, which with what I'm guessing is New York City. Uh, and from this scan of the cover image, it looks pretty cool. Uh, and of course, we get a little, a little circle blurb to show you that Orion is in this issue. Um, we get Sugar and Spike, number 96, another 25-page man I said that again 25 cent 64 page book and on this one it has a contest where if you write you can write your own comic page and win ten dollars which I hope is not the going rate for a page of comic because that kind of sucks but um this story features one two three four five six seven eight ten different uh, sugar and spike stories in 64 pages so yeah. Oh, uh, we have Unexpected, number 125, which looks pretty scary. We have Green Lantern and Green Arrow, number 84, Peril in Plastic. And this features um, Green Arrow and Green Lantern are pretty much tied up. And, well, if you want to call it tied up, they're in some kind of metal contraption uh, covering both their hands and holding them together and there's a f guy on the background uh, tell them that that the uh, who wouldn't uh, wouldn't the world be a better place without Green Lantern and Green Arrow why don't you kill them and find out and I don't know who this is I, I don't know if it's someone that works at DC like Saul Harrison or something like that or some famous person that I'm not aware of from the 70, early 70s but uh, I have no idea who that is, and I nothing I see, uh, nothing I can find tells me who it is. So if anyone knows that, that would be something really cool to like write in and let me know, and then I can mention it on the show or something. But I have no idea who that is, and nothing mentions that we have Justice League of America number ninety. Uh, we get Super. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Adventure Comics number four hundred seven, and once again we. Uh, it appears someone has found out Linda Danvers' uh, secret identity because we see her looking for something, and this person is off camera but holding up the Supergirl costume. And then, of course, finally we've got Detective Comics number 412 uh, with Batman uh, looking like he's in mud fighting against a knight on a horse. So that should be pretty cool, and it's also got a Batgirl story as a backup, but uh, that cover is by Neil Adams, and it looks really cool. And that's it for this month. So um, 
Make sure you check out the other cool Superman shows at uh, fortressofbailytube.com slash Superman Podcast Network. And um, thank you for listening, and you guys have a great day. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section, and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.